Okay, hey, good morning. Uh, I know, let me, I have to turn off. I can't, I love your faces, but I can't look at them while I'm, while I'm up here because I, I get distracted and I want to say things to people and, and, uh, and chat with you. So I can't do that, uh, especially today. Uh, but good morning to you. I, I, I didn't see if we had any guests, but if we do, it's great to have you worshiping with us uh, here at Wayside this morning. Uh, and our passage, as my, uh, as Stacy's mom read, is, is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. That's where we're going to be today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it, or you can use a Bible app, and, uh, and that'll help as you follow, uh, as, as we move along through this passage, it's helpful to have it in front of you, um, and we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I alluded to this last week. But uh, this passage that we're going to look at today is by no means easy to interpret. Uh, there, there are a lot of complexities involved, and, and just given its overall importance in understanding the, the letter to the Hebrews as a whole and understanding what the, the various warning passages that are, that are spaced throughout Hebrews mean, and really what the overall emphasis um, theologically is of the, of the author uh, who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, uh, this, this passage is crucial. So it's really tempting to just, when you get to a difficult passage like this, to just read it in light of our own pre-existing theological assumptions. Okay, whatever theological camp we're from, uh, whether we're you know Calvinist or Armenian or whatever it is, we can just kind of step into a difficult passage and just fall back on, on our theological assumptions. Uh, but I want to challenge us to, to, to do this differently. Um, instead of doing that, instead of just packing in our own assumptions about uh, what, what this means, what we need to do is really open ourselves up uh, to having our assumptions challenged. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. And when we open ourselves up to having our assumptions challenged, we will take advantage of an opportunity for spiritual growth in our Christian walk. But if we just get to difficult passages and just read in our own presuppositions, our own assumptions, whether those are biblically based or culturally based or personal or whatever it is, then we're going to miss opportunities to grow in our, in our faith in Christ. So that's what I challenge us to do today. There's a Bible scholar who, who wrote uh, a commentary on, on Hebrews by the name of David Allen, and he describes uh, what I would call a much better way to approach today's passage. Uh, David Allen writes this. He says, Most attempts at analyzing this passage fall into the trap of putting theology before exegesis, which is reading out of the text what the meaning is. And then he goes on. While it is impossible to come to this or any text with a hermeneutical tabula rasa, that's just a blank slate in terms of our um, method of interpreting scripture, okay? He says it's impossible to come to this or any text with a completely blank slate. It is at least incumbent on each interpreter to suspend, as far as is possible, presuppositions concerning the various theological positions centered around this text. Since biblical theology, that is the theology derived directly from the Bible, uh, must precede systematic theology, that's where we kind of put together our theology in a, in, a, in, a, in a system. He says, since biblical theology must precede systematic theology, a thorough linguistic 
exegetical and historical examination of this passage is in order. And, and he, he finishes with, only then will we be in a position to theologize, okay? So what he's saying is basically that we need to approach today's passage with an open mind, with a humble heart, and with a willingness to actually do the hard work necessary to better understand and, and ultimately to, to better apply this really important text. And as a friend reminded me late last night, we can trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in this process, guiding all of us to a deeper and deeper understanding and appreciation of God's Word. Now, it is unfortunate that one of the consequences of living in a fallen world, of wrestling with a sin nature, one of the consequences of sin in general is that we are constantly tempted to give up when things get difficult. And whether that's interpreting a difficult passage or some other aspect of our lives, we are constantly tempted to give up. So thank God this morning, thank God every morning for the Holy Spirit. Um, thank God that, that, that Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit to, to help us. He sends him to help us not just get through tough, difficult situations, but to actually grow through those situations. And so the, the big idea today is, is that God willing, we will grow. God willing, we will grow. And, and this will happen not in spite of our difficulties, folks, but as a direct result of them. But in order to grow in this way that we're talking about, we need to take to heart three key principles that are found in today's passage. Number one, we must, as Christians, forge ahead. Okay? We must keep, keep moving forward. Number two, we must not fall away. We're going to talk about that today. And then number three, we must all face judgment. That's just a reality that, that well, every human being will, will stand before God uh, in judgment. Now, we're going to talk about what that judgment looks like for Christians when we get to the end of our passage today. But forge ahead, don't fall away, and the reality that we will all face judgment at the end of this life. All right. God willing, we will grow but we must forge ahead. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. In verses 1 and 2, we are called to leave our immaturity. And I'll read it. It says, Therefore, this is in the NASB, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, that is the Messiah, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, the main idea here is the call to press on to maturity. And this theme of the need for spiritual maturity runs all throughout this warning passage from uh, what we looked at last week, starting in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through uh, chapter 6, verse 12, which we'll look at next week. And the ultimate goal of this, this spiritual maturity is spiritual fruitfulness. It's to bear fruit, uh, as we are going to see later in the passage when we get to the end of it. But leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ and this uh, idea of not laying again a foundation, these are parallel ideas, one in the positive sense, one in the negative sense. And the author describes this foundation or uh, uh, this elementary teaching about the Christ, he describes our foundational uh, understandings with three pairs of teachings or doctrines. 
Um, and, and these could, there's a little debate on, are these Jewish teachings or doctrines? Are these Christian teachings or doctrines? I tend to see it as Christian interpretations of basic Jewish teachings from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that these Hebrew Christians who are reading this letter would have been familiar with, okay? And these include uh, three pairs. The first is repentance and faith, repentance from dead works and faith uh, toward God for salvation. Uh, The next pair is washings. Um, The word there is actually baptisms, but uh, it, it seems to be referring not to the technical Christian baptism in that sense, but but more in the sense of washings, uh, and then the laying on of hands, and these were possibly indicating Jewish purification rites, the washing and the laying on of hands of the sin substitute and things like this that we see in the Old Testament, and then the final pair is resurrection and judgment, which are both future-oriented realities, and whatever these six topics included in terms of their content, they were at best only a foundation for the Christian faith. Uh, and, and in chapters 7 through 10, the author is going to go into much more depth on deeper teachings specifically related to the high priesthood of Jesus. Uh, but we need help in order to understand and apply such things. Frankly, we need help to understand and apply the basics of the Christian faith in terms of the most basic teachings. We need God's help to, to, to trust in the gospel, to understand and trust in uh, the good news of Jesus Christ. But as we grow and get to deeper and deeper teachings, we're going to need God's help to understand and apply these things. So in verse 3, we are called to what? We're called to lean on God. And I love this, this short little verse in, uh, in verse 3. It says, and this, uh, this pressing on to maturity, and this we will do if God permits. I love it. It reminds us of in a very succinct way of the relationship between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. And, and so the idea is we must be ready as Christians to ready and willing to press on to maturity, but we must ultimately depend on God to make that happen according to his will for us, for our lives. We must forge ahead towards spiritual maturity, but we mustn't forget that spiritual growth is, is always ultimately a gift from God. Uh, as many of you know, and this is this is great because today's Taylor Bargo's birthday, so I'm going to pick on Brandon Bargo with my illustrations. Uh, but as you all know, Brandon, is he's a skilled mountain climber. He loves to climb mountains. And uh, at our men's getaway last weekend, he was sharing these really great stories from all of his, uh, not all of them, that would take days, but uh, some of his uh, just really great stories of climbing mountains and the the circumstances that went along with that. And one of his stories uh, was good, but it was really, it was a testimony of God's grace. That's that's what I came away with it, uh, came away with from it. So the idea is, uh, or the the basic storyline is, he goes to, I believe it's Ireland, um, Ireland or Scotland, I think it's Ireland, and uh, he's going to climb this this mountain, and this much, must have been early on in his mountain climbing career because he admitted that he just didn't have very good gear. He, he didn't have very good equipment to do this. Uh, he, he wasn't really prepared well, and it started to rain heavily, like the storm rolled in, and it's just drenching him, and he's just sitting there in the rain waiting it out. So eventually, um, just due to the, the circumstances he was facing, he gave up his climb, and he attempted to hitchhike back into town because he was way out in the middle of nowhere, okay? And at this point in his life, as, as he tells the story, he was really wrestling with the existence of God. Does God really exist? 
And so he finally gets picked up by this guy. Uh, and the guy, and I mean, no cars were coming by for hours. And finally, this one little car comes by, you know, on the horizon and stops. And, uh, and it turns out to be a pastor of a small church in the area. And he gets in the car with this guy. And as they're driving, the pastor asks him this. He says, do you ever wonder if God really exists? Just, just out of the blue, right? And this is something he's, he's grinding at, this question. And, uh, and so then the pastor shares his own testimony of how he went through all these hardships and didn't, didn't trust in God, didn't believe in God, didn't uh, trust in Jesus. And then eventually he did. And, uh, and Brandon, as he tells the story, you were like waiting for him to go. And then Brandon became a Christian, you know, but of course that didn't happen. And he went on uh, quite a while of wrestling with that. Um, and the guy invited him to his church. And he's like, no, thanks, man. You know, just, I need to get dropped off here. So anyway, if, if Brandon hadn't forged, and this is what I like from that story. If he hadn't forged ahead with his own plans to, to climb this mountain, which by the way, never came to fruition, then he wouldn't have been there on that road at that particular time, on that particular day, when that particular car with that particular person was driving by and willing to stop and pick him up on the side of the road. And that story reminds me uh, that even before we ever realize it, God is he's working in our lives to lead us to faith. And then once we come to faith, He's constantly working in our lives to develop our faith, to deepen our faith in Jesus Christ. When we forge ahead without God, he is still at work in our lives. He is sovereign, okay? But when we forge ahead with God, then we will experience the spiritual growth that only he can cause. So, we have to ask ourselves, where are we forging ahead in life? What, what are the circumstances of that? Are we forging ahead without God? Or are we forging ahead with God? Um, uh, Elias and I have been memorizing Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And, and in, in verse 6 of Proverbs 3, it reminds us to acknowledge God in all our ways, and He will make our paths straight. And that, that certainly includes our path to spiritual maturity, to spiritual growth, and ultimately maturity and, and fruitfulness, as we'll see in a little bit. But sadly, though, we sometimes forsake that path, God's path, in order to go our own way in life. And that leads to our next three verses. Uh, God willing, we will grow, but we must not fall away. Look at verses four to six. So here in verses four to six, we see the possibility of rejecting Christ as a Christian. Um, and we also see the, the subsequent or related reality of the impossibility of being renewed to repentance. And uh, we're going to talk about that. But first, we see the possibility of rejection. And it says, starting in verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and, and in mine it says, and then have fallen away, but really, uh, uh, maybe a better translation that's in the NIV or one of the translations says, and who have fallen away. This is just the fifth characteristic of these people that they're describing. They, this, 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 and this, and, and who have fallen away. And here's where things get really interesting in terms of interpreting this passage, okay? This is, 
sort of the, the battleground, so to speak, of all these different theological, you know, systematic theologies and things. So I'm just going to, I'm going to humbly proceed and, uh, and hopefully you'll follow along with me on this. The first question we have to ask when we get to this, these verses is who is the author addressing here? Uh, he's either talking about true Christians, uh, people who he believes to be Christians, okay? Or he's talking to those who merely pro- profess Christianity. He's talking to those who uh, might say they're Christians but have never really bowed the knee to Christ. Uh, or perhaps a mix of both groups in this this small church that he's writing to with these Hebrew Christians. But I got to tell you, based on those descriptions that we read in verses four and five, I, I have I have to say, um, to the best of my ability, the way I interpret this verse is that he's probably referring to actual Christians, not just those who merely profess to be Christians. And again, the the main reason for that is is how he's describing them in verses four and five. Uh, later on in chapter ten, which we'll get to eventually. That word enlightened shows back up, and it refers to those who have become Christians. In fact, it talks about how after they were enlightened and became Christians, they faced persecution and suffering. And then you, you, you hear this, uh, you have this idea of, of receiving the heavenly gift, and that's probably a metaphor for salvation. It is in, in, in other areas of the New Testament. It's referring to salvation, or it, it also at times gets referred to as uh, receiving the Holy Spirit, the gift of from heaven, the heavenly gift. And then tasting, you know, in, in the way we think of that, we kind of uh, load in the idea of sampling something like a, like a wine tasting or something and you swish it around and spit it out. Um, that's not what tasting something means. I mean, just given the context, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, which we looked at several weeks back, Jesus, it says, tasted death for everyone. Okay, he didn't, you know, sample death. Like he... he he experienced death to the fullest extent, okay? Uh, and so this idea of tasting in the context of Hebrews seems to be fully experiencing something. And then you go on. It's hard to imagine how an unbelieving person could be described as having been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. We've seen that word partaker at least twice already in the, in the book of Hebrews. And it's the idea of sharing in something, sharing in the Holy Spirit in this case. And then finally, these individuals have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And, and this uh, probably refers here to uh, the, the apostolic signs and wonders that were taking place, the miracles that were being accomplished through the apostles as confirmation of the truth of the gospel that they were preaching uh, during those apostolic times. But if these individuals were truly believers, okay, let's say we read all those descriptions in 4 and 5 and we come to the conclusion that they, they, they were actual believers, okay, Christians, then what does falling away mean in verse 6? Some people interpret this verse to mean that true believers can lose their salvation. So they see it as true believers, but they see it as an actual loss of salvation. And that's what's typically called the Ar- Arminian view. Uh, and, and there are whole denominations that hold to that. But that doesn't really fit the context of our passage very well as we look at it in the, in the immediate context or in the context of Hebrews as a whole. And it, it would certainly fly in the face of numerous New Testament assertions 
of the eternal security of our salvation as Christians. There's a lot of them. It's important to note a couple things. One, we need to note that verse 6 is in the context of a warning passage. It's smack dab in the middle of a warning passage from 5.11 to 6.12 that is related to spiritual growth and maturity. So, in other words, it's in the context of our sanctification, our our becoming more and more Christ-like. It's not in the context of our justification. When the, the gavel comes down, when we trust in Jesus, that he died for our sins and rose again, And the gavel comes down and we're proclaimed by God to be not guilty. Okay, that's justification. That happens when we trust in Christ. And that's not the context we're in in this warning passage. And and here the author also seems to be talking about the same sin as in the other warning passages. And, And they're scattered throughout Hebrews. There's at least five of them. Some people break them up differently and come up with six or seven. But these other four, at least, warning passages in Hebrews seem to be talking about the same thing that we're seeing here. So we kind of have to take them all together, I guess, is, is, is the point there. But think about some of the terms that show up in these other warning passages. In chapter 2, it says uh, not to drift away. In chapter 3, not to turn away. In chapter 4, not to fall short. In chapter 10, not to throw away. And again, in chapter 12, not to turn away from, from God. So it doesn't seem likely that the term in verse 6 uh, that, that we translate usually falling away, it doesn't seem likely that that would refer to apostasy in a technical theological sense and, and, and so then be different from whatever the author was intending in these other warning passages. I hope that makes sense. I guess my point here, the thing to walk away with is if you're going to understand what this falling away means, you, you really need to understand it interpret it in the context of the rest of Hebrews and specifically the other warning passages, okay? All right, hopefully that's not too confusing. So as far as I can tell, verse 6 is stating the the way I interpret it to the best of my ability is that it's referring to the very real possibility of Christians rejecting Christ their Lord. And although this doesn't lead to loss of salvation, it still has very serious consequences, okay? For one thing, we see the impossibility of being renewed to repentance. Look at the end of verse 6. Referring to these people we just talked about, it says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Repentance being a change of mind or a turning away from something. So it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, folks, this is strong language. Re-crucifying the Son of God to themselves uh, and putting him to open shame. This refers to what happens when a Christian stops acting like a Christian. And, And what they do, in essence, through their unbelief, an unwillingness to follow Jesus Christ, they in essence step away from him and and sort of step into the ranks of the unbelieving crowd that's crying, crucify him. That's that's what the author's trying to get across here is that we're aligning ourselves with the unbelieving spirit that says Jesus wasn't the son of God. Jesus wasn't our savior in any real sense, that he was just a guy that uh, deserved what he got, essentially. Okay, some interpreters understand this verse to mean that, and, and think about the subtleties here. So the, the, 
the idea of it being impossible to renew, that verb for renew, it doesn't have a subject. And so some interpreters put the subject in there as people, as the, the, you know, the authors or whoever it is. So some interpreters understand this to mean that it is impossible for us as humans to renew them again to repentance. In other words, but it's not impossible for God to do so. But the author uses that word impossible uh, in three other places in Hebrews, and it always means impossible, period. Uh, like it's impossible for God to lie, which we'll see a little bit later on. Um, other interpreters understand this to mean that it is impossible. They take it in the sense of time. So they say it is impossible to renew them again to repentance while they are re-crucifying and putting him to open shame. Do you see that subtle difference of while they are doing these things, it's impossible to renew them? The idea is that if they stop, then they can be renewed to repentance. But it's it's really, it's probably best to see those two statements, um, the re-crucifying and the putting him to open shame, as the, the cause or the reason for this impossibility of their being renewed to repentance. It seems to be causal in that sense. It's telling us why uh, the reason for this. So then we're left with this question. How can it be that true believers could fall away to such an extent that they would be beyond the hope of turning back, that they would be beyond the hope of being renewed to repentance? Again, if we're talking about spiritual growth and maturity, then there could certainly come a point when God refuses. He, he chooses not to grant repentance to a hard-hearted Christian who themselves, who, who himself or herself refuses to press on to maturity. So God doesn't have to grant repentance leading to a, a turnaround. Now again, if this isn't talking about salvation in the sense of justification, this is talking about how we live our lives for as long as we live our lives, okay? And sometimes in, the, in Scripture, we see people who seem to be believers who, who die, uh, whose physical life is cut short because of their uh, rejection of, of God, their acts of unbelief, their sin, their, their perpetual persistent sin, their hard-heartedness that brings shame to Christ. And I mean, you see that in, in John's letters, you see that in Paul's letters, um, you see that in the book of Acts, seemingly with uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. So all that to say, the point here is that it seems best to understand that, that there can come a, a point of hard-heartedness for a Christian where God does not grant them repentance and, and he refuses to uh, bring about a situation where they would then press on towards spiritual maturity. And we should really read verse 6 in light of verse 3. Again, context is so crucial for understanding and interpreting these things. But remember verse 3, that great little verse I love so much? It reminds us that we can only forge ahead if God permits. And in some cases, folks, he may not. Therefore, it's important to realize that Christians can fall away, but this always leads to serious consequences. Uh, this reminds me of yet another Brandon Bargo mountain adventure. Uh, at the men's getaway, he was telling us about a time when he took some guys, I think, to, to climb Mount Hood. I may be wrong on that, but I believe it was Mount Hood. And I think Andy uh, Harris and Dave Rowe were on the trip with him. But anyway, he also took along this young guy who uh, wanted to become a Navy SEAL. He was sort of preparing to, to, uh, to become a Navy SEAL. 
Well, as it seems to be the case with many of Brandon's mountain climbing uh, experiences, the weather got bad quickly and they were dealing with cold, rainy, miserable conditions on this mountain. So, so this Navy SEAL hopeful gets fed up with this, these miserable conditions and he says he's not having any fun and that he's going to go back to the base. He's going to go back home. He's going to quit. And so Brandon, you know, being the great motivator that he is, uh, wait, or is he a dominator? Uh, I couldn't remember. That's a that's an inside joke for the guys that were on the men's getaway, by the way. But Brandon, regardless of what his personality type is, he convinces this guy to keep going, to keep moving forward. But after a few more of these episodes, uh, he he actually turns around. This guy uh, stops the climb, turns around, and leaves this mountain climbing experience. And, and eventually, the rest of the guys do make it up to the summit of the mountain. But sadly, this young guy who left never got the satisfaction of completing the climb. He, and this is the way Brandon describes it, but he says that this guy seemed to not really know why he was climbing this mountain in the first place. And so he quickly succumbed to his discouragement when he faced unmet expectations. And, and I'm hoping that, that you can see the parallel to our spiritual lives as Christians here. The fact is that we constantly face temptation to fold our hand and to fall away uh, from following Christ in moments of despair or grief or anger, bitterness, frustration, whatever it is. If we're not careful, we too can fall away from Christ. So consider this question this morning. How might I be susceptible to falling away from Christ? Are, are you angry at God about something? Maybe it's an, expect, an unmet expectation in your life. Are you being fooled into thinking that a secret sin can bring you satisfaction in a way that Christ cannot? Whatever that secret sin may be. Maybe it's not so secret. I don't know. As Christians, we need to know why we're climbing the mountain. <laughs> so that when these distractions and these temptations come, the, the, the cold and the wind and the rain, so to speak, we will quickly turn to our Lord. We will quickly lean on our Lord so that we don't fall away. And the only remedy I can see to turning away from the Lord is to constantly be turning back to Him when we fail, which we will at times, or when we're simply facing temptation. And in this way, we will remember that He loves us and that he died for our sins and he rose from the dead so that we could take hold of that forgiveness that's available only in Christ so that we could hold fast to our confidence in him, our hope in him, so that we could take hold of eternal life in a reconciled relationship with God the Father. The gospel, this good news, it, it also reminds us that Jesus, folks, is coming back. So let's turn to our final two verses, which help us to see what can happen in our lives as we look at these different possibilities in light of what will eventually happen in our lives or at the end of our lives. We will face judgment, but God willing, we will have grown. Look at verses seven and eight. And this is an agricultural illustration of our earlier verses that the author puts in here to help, help illustrate what we're talking about. So here we see God's judgment on two different Christian lives. You have the fruitful and you have the fruitless. Uh, starting in verse 7. 
For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled or cultivated receives a blessing from God. But, verse 8, and it's talking about the same ground here. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. So fruitful ground will be blessed. All right, that's the first thing we see. And this ground, again, represents a Christian life that receives from God everything it needs to be fruitful. The light of the gospel, the gift of salvation, the Holy Spirit, the goodness of God's word, and experiences with the powers of the the coming messianic age. We get a glimpse of of what this this coming messianic age, the kingdom uh, of God, is going to look like when Christ returns. So these are all the the things that we receive as Christians to help us to be fruitful. And therefore, this ground bears spiritual fruit. And having judged it approvingly, God blesses it. So God gives it what it needs to be fruitful. It bears fruit and God approves of it. God blesses it. Okay, but fruitless ground will be burned. And again, there are not two different grounds. Okay, there's only one ground here. So here we again see a Christian life, seemingly, but with a very different outcome. This Christian life has proven fruitless, even though it has been given everything it needs to become spiritually fruitful. But with only useless thorns and thistles, the ground is judged by God and it's found wanting. Uh, The term there, which uh, in my translation gets translated as worthless, it literally means unqualified or not standing the test. And interestingly, the, the ground, it says, is, is not cursed. It says it's, it's uh, close to being cursed, okay? But the ground does end up being burned in that third phrase. And, and you know, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious that when you hear uh, burning fire, uh, people tend, and this is where we have to set aside our theological assumptions as we interpret this, but it's easy to see in that hellfire or uh, the, the lake of, of fire that's referenced in the book of Revelation, okay? This idea of eternal condemnation, all right? But burning can also refer to other things as well, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, including purification of God's people and including God's discipline of his own people. And this was certainly true with Israel in the Old Testament. Many times we see this burning or God's fire um, being used in the sense of disciplining God's people, Israel, okay? But we also see images of burning in the New Testament. And these are passages that we probably don't spend enough time thinking about. But I want to read you 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And and there's similar passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Romans 14, but we don't have time to go into all of them today. So I just want to read you what Paul says about the testing of our Christian lives that we will eventually face based on how the foundation of our Christian life, which is faith in Jesus Christ, he's the foundation, how we and how others build upon that foundation uh, with things that will either stand the test of, of and be uh, approved of and, and result in blessing, or that it will be burned up, 
Uh, in other words, it'll be proved worthless, like we're talking about here in the passage. So 1 Corinthians 3, chap, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, that is Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, that is, passes through the fire, isn't burned up, uh, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." So although Christians will not face eternal condemnation, we will certainly face judgment in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God willing, by that point, we will have grown and will receive the reward for a life of spiritual fruitfulness. You know, the the young guy who got fed up and walked away from the mountain, the end of the story is he never ended up becoming a Navy SEAL. And, And I don't know him personally, and I don't mean to make him into a parable, Uh, I don't know all the factors that went into that, but I wonder if that wasn't the result of a a long series of choices like the one on that mountain that day in those miserable circumstances. Faced with the misery of, of rainy, windy, cold conditions, he walked away from that challenge. You know, my cousin, uh, is at the Naval Academy right now, and he also wants to be a Navy SEAL. And so I talked to him quite a bit about it. But uh, I have no idea, uh, I don't, it's not, I have no idea. I have no doubt that he has what it takes to become a Navy SEAL. But as he tells me about it, um, it's no cakewalk, folks. Like the, 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 the preparation it takes to even get to the point of testing to become a Navy SEAL is excruciating. It takes everything you've got and then some, okay? And the Christian life is really no different. It takes everything you've got all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, uh, putting your whole life on the altar as a living sacrifice, as it talks about in Romans, and then some, and then more. In fact, we can only grow in our faith if God permits, going back to verse 3. But if our will is aligned with his will, which is for our growth and fruitfulness, then we will become mature followers of Christ and he will use us in unimaginable ways for the good of others and for his glory and in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will even reward us for what he ultimately accomplishes in and through our lives. Talk about a deal, right? We will face judgment, but God willing, we will have grown and been fruitful. Uh, We need to live our lives according to God's purpose for our lives, which is spiritual maturity and fruitfulness in whatever context God places us in. And the more and more we grow, the more and more fruitful we will become. We will uh, bear the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul talks about in Galatians. We will live with joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And we will have opportunities to introduce others to the hope of the gospel and to the joy of our salvation in Christ. In fact, one of the rewards, and Paul talks about this when he's writing letters to the churches, one of the rewards that we will receive at the return of Christ 
will simply be seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ whose salvation was the fruit of our own faith and our own spiritual growth in Christ. The people that God used us to help them hear the good news of Jesus Christ and trust in him. And that in and of itself is an eternal reward. Uh, Even before we ever turn to God, he is at work in our lives, drawing us to himself. And we will all begin this Christian journey as spiritual infants, okay? Like we're all going to go through this process. We're going to begin as spiritual infants, as immature. uh, But God willing, folks, we will grow. And by God's grace, we will help others grow, who will in turn help others grow, and on and on until the day when our Lord Jesus Christ will say to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Um, Next week, we get to see more of what it means to be a good and faithful servant. As the author of Hebrews transitions from this really heavy warning to uh, a much more positive tone to further encourage his readers as he points out areas of faithfulness in their lives. And that's what we're going to look at next week as we wrap up this, this warning passage. So let me pray for us. Please bow your heads.